Well, if you have your Bibles once again with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 17. If you're a guest with us, we are spending the summer studying the Psalms. We've come to a psalm this morning that most are probably not very familiar with. And I'll confess to you that this is my first time studying it in depth and preaching and teaching on it. And I think you'll find it very helpful. Psalm 17. And I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, praying through the pain. Psalm 17. And this is what the Word of God says. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me. O God, incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings, from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity, with their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps, they set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me... I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Do you know what it's like to be misunderstood? To be falsely accused? To be judged unfairly? To feel as if you are surrounded by enemies who want to not only charnish your reputation, but take your position, and even if possible your livelihood, the pain, heartbreak, and resentment that situations like this bring are all too common and all too real. And everything within us in these moments longs for vindication. We long to defend ourselves and to fight back. And if this opening description sounds familiar to you, then you'll have no problem relating to the words of Psalm 17. Psalm 17 is the first psalm in the Psalter that is officially introduced in the superscription above the first verse as a prayer. 
And this superscription says that it is a prayer of David, a prayer that David uttered from pain. He's afflicted by unjust accusation and surrounded by enemies who want to kill him. And David's first response is to pray. And he never moves in this psalm from that posture of dependence. The words of David's prayer in this psalm reflect a confidence in the hope, compassion, and faithfulness of God. Instead of taking matters into his own hands and instead of appealing appealing to man, David takes his case to heaven. Dr. Steve Lawson, in his commentary on this psalm, describes what's happening in David's life and with prayer this way. He says, In every adversity of life, prayer is one of the believer's greatest weapons, a sure and trusted instrument that brings victory in the face of defeat. This proved to be true in David's life as he found himself in perilous situations, calling out to God to deliver him. David learned to put his trust in God, relying upon his presence and his power to rescue him from all harm. And friends, one of the ways that we see David's confidence in Psalm 17 is by his consistent use of anthropomorphisms. And what that big word means is that David, in his prayer, takes characteristics that we describe of our human bodies, and he applies them to God. He speaks of the Lord's lips in verse 4, his ear in verse 6, his hand in verse 7, his eye in verse 8, his wings in verse 8, and his face in verse 15. And when David says God's lips, he means that God speaks to us. His ears mean that he hears us. His hands mean that he helps us. His eyes mean that he sees us. His wings mean that he covers us. And his face means that he looks at us. And the point that David is making with all of these descriptions of God is that God is alive and God is near and God is active in the lives of his people. And our confidence in God lies in his active involvement and in his awareness of all of life's trials and difficulties and tragedies. So really, Psalm 17 is just not just a prayer for those who are falsely accused or under attack. This psalm is a prayer for every believer. For all of us suffer. All of us struggle. All of us fight spiritual battles, whether we realize it or not. And all of us are tempted to retreat in the midst of our trials. And so we come to Psalm 17. And this psalm reminds us that in our pain, we are not alone. It's in those discouraging times that David teaches us to pray through the pain. So would you notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, that David prays, exonerate me. And he writes, hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. The psalm begins with the language of a courtroom as David presents his case to the Lord. 
And in verses 1 and 2, David uses five verbs as he pleads for Yahweh to exonerate him. Do you see what he says? Hear, attend, give ear, let. And then in verse 2, he uses the word let a second time. And the intensity of David's prayer is seen in this threefold description. He describes his prayer as a just cause. He describes it as my cry. And he describes it as my prayer. The phrase just cause is an English translation of the Hebrew word that means righteous. It emphasizes and indicates that which is right or normal. And it applies to what is just in a court of law. And so you could literally translate this first phrase in verse number one. Hear, O righteous Lord. Or hear, O Lord, a righteous person. Or hear, O Lord, a righteous cause. And at the outset of this psalm, David saw the Lord as a righteous judge who does not listen to the prayers of the wicked. So he reminds Yahweh in verse number one that his prayer is made with lips that are free of deceit. He's confessing to God in the opening line of this prayer that, God, as I cry out to you, I am not a man of hypocrisy. I am, man, I am a man who is real and a man who is struggling. It's a reminder that God sees through all forms of hypocrisy. He knows our thoughts and the deep secrets of our hearts. And we can in no way fool him by making our prayers sound spiritual. David teaches us that in the midst of our pain as we cry out to God, we must be honest with him. And we have to cry out with the true condition of our heart and in our soul. And in verse 2, because he is confident of his innocence and the fact that Yahweh will look upon his situation rightly, David asks God to vindicate him, to vindicate him. These opening lines of David's prayer express an urgent cry for the ear and the eyes of the Lord and for justice regarding the intense opposition that has come against David. This is how David begins his prayer. And he teaches us in these two lines how to openly and honestly cry out to the Lord. And I want to remind you this morning of what David knew all too well that we need to remember in these times. That the ultimate answer to David's prayer was not met in David himself. It was met in the descendant of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ, too, knew what it was like to be falsely accused. Jesus Christ, too, knew what it was like to be unjustly treated. Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, became sin for you and me so that we could be vindicated through the righteousness of God from Christ that is applied to us. And so Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and my sins. He was buried in a tomb and he rose on the third day, and he sits at the right hand of the Father as a sign and evidence that God has accepted his work on the cross in vindicating us through the blood that his son shed on our behalf. 
and friends because Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3 says that when we come to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our souls, our lives become hidden with Christ in God. We ultimately find our vindication in this life and in the life to come through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He is our only vindication and our ultimate vindication comes from him. And so I ask you this morning what this psalm begs us to ask of ourselves. When you're in a painful situation, is your first response like David, prayer? Hebrews 4.13 says that because we are vindicated in Jesus Christ, we should come with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And so I ask you this morning, in painful situations, is your first response prayer? Is your first response to go with confidence to the throne of grace and find mercy and help in your time of need? Do you have the language of prayer that David has in these opening verses where he pleads with God in a bold, specific, direct language to attend to his pain and to attend to his cries? Do you talk to God like that? Do you see, friends, this is one of the purposes of the Psalms. To teach us how to talk to God. And specifically, how to talk to him in this situation in our pain. Well, David not only prays, exonerate me. In verses 3 to 5, he prays, examine me. Look at what he says. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me. And you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent, and my steps have held fast to your paths, and my feet have not slipped. Now what, notice what David does beginning in verse 3. He invites God to probe his life and to examine him. And he uses three words in this verse to describe God's examination of his life. And all three words are in the present perfect, which emphasize continuous action. And so David is inviting God to continually, as he prays in his pain, crying out for God's help, he continually invites God to examine his life. The words are tried, visited, and tested. And so notice how he begins. You have tried my heart. And when he uses the word heart, he's referring to his whole being, that God would examine his thoughts and his decisions and his actions, that every part of him would be laid bare before the all-seeing eyes of God. He's tried my heart. Secondly, he says, you have visited me by night. It has the sense of inspection or investigation. It describes a purposeful visit. It's the language of an auditor who comes to visit your office. And he's there to inspect your books and your procedures. 
and to make sure that you're in keeping line with proper regulations. It, it has the language in the picture of an army leader who is visiting the barracks and he's there to investigate the troops to make sure that they're prepared for battle. And this phrase gives a picture of David lying in bed at night under the full examination of God as he meditates on the Word of God and he examines his life in light of that Word and God comes to visit him in the quietness of the night and instruct him through his Word in the way that he should live. You've examined me in my heart. You've examined me in the night. And number three, he says, you've tested me. This word is the same word that is used for refining gold or melting metal. And the picture here is that God melted down David's heart so that whatever impurity was inside of him rose to the surface and was removed from his life. Now notice what David says about this examination in verse 3. It is humbling and powerful. This examination, as you can tell by the words that he uses, was intense and thorough. Every part of his life was under God's purview. And David concludes that as God examines his life thoroughly, he will find nothing. Could you say that? Could I say that this morning, God, that you would examine our lives and you would find nothing? But he's not finished. Additionally, according to David, at the end of verse 3 and in verse 4, God's examination would reveal that David committed no transgressions with his mouth and that he had avoided all the ways of the violent. And furthermore, in verse number 4, David affirms that he's lived by the word of God. And in verse 5, David testifies that the direction of his life has remained on God's paths, that his steps have not slipped or veered to the right or to the left, that all of his ways are true and pure and keeping and following the word of God. This is a complete and thorough examination. And David's conclusion at the end of all of it is that he's truly innocent. He's claiming his innocence against these unjust accusations. He's maintaining his integrity before the God who sees and knows everything about him. He's saying, God, I have nothing to hide. I'm right in my walk. I'm right in my heart. I'm righteous in my ways. Dale Ralph Davis, in his book, Slogging Along the Paths of Righteousness, describes David's testimony in these verses this way. He's not claiming sinlessness but steadfastness. He's not boasting of his perfection, but he is arguing for his consistency. He's saying that he has been loyal to God, not impeccable. And friends, if you and I want to pray and have this kind of confidence, we must be able to say the same thing that David is saying. We must be able to say the same of our heart and the same of our walk if we expect God to hear our prayers and answer us. This is how the psalmist describes prayer in Psalm 66 and verse 18. He says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, if I had held on to sin in my heart, in my life, in the deep recesses of my being, listen to what he says, the Lord would not have heard me. If I hold on to my sin, 
the Lord will not hear me. And it's more than just holding on to your sin. Listen to how the psalmist described it. If I cherished my sin, if I loved my sin, if my sin was so dear to me that I tried to hide it in my heart and life thinking that I could fool God and fool other people, if I cherished it in that way, the Lord would not hear my prayers. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says this, but your iniquities have have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. He does not hear the prayers of His people who are harboring and cherishing sin in their lives. Our sin makes a separation between us and God. It doesn't mean that we don't belong to Him. It means that our relationship with Him is broken then we need to be reconciled and made right. We need to repent of our sin and turn away from it and confess it to the Lord and stop cherishing it and hiding it and trying to fool Him. Oh, friends, when are you going to learn that He already knows what you're doing? Nothing can be hidden from God. He's omniscient. He sees all things. He knows all things. You're deceiving yourself if you think you can deceive God. He sees it all. And so I ask all of us this morning, would our hearts and our walk withstand the scrutiny with which God examined David? Is there a cherished sin in your life today that you are holding on to and refusing to confess and turn away from? I want to make a second application about these verses 3 through 5. Notice what David does. David begins in verses 1 and 2 declaring his innocence. And in verses 3 through 5, he begins to put his life before God in examination. And haven't you ever, when you've been unjustly accused, when you've been wronged, when something has happened to you, haven't you found yourself going to God in prayer in those times and the first things on your lips are talking about the ones who have hurt you and how they've done wrong and how you're right and they're wrong and God, how can you let this happen? And God, when are you going to deal with them? I mean, I don't deserve this, God. Why are you letting this happen to me? What's wrong with you? Can't you see what's happening? Oh, by the looks on your faces, I think you've been there, just like me. But do you know what happens? you know what I've found? That's where I often start when I've been wronged, when I've been threatened, when I've been hurt. But I don't stay there very long because as I'm honest before God and as He begins to examine my life through His Word and through His Spirit, it isn't long until I realize the part I've played in the situation in the wrongs that I have done, in my bad attitude, in my selfish desires. And do you know what ends up happening in my prayer in those times? I begin not praying for God to deal with those other people, but for God to deal with me and for God to forgive me and for God to heal me and for God to make my heart right and for God to humble me and for God, listen, for God to help me to love them even though they haven't said they were sorry. Do you see what's happening in David's life? 
at this moment in his prayer, it's not really about his enemies. It's about him. Him being right before his creator. And friends, I will tell you at the end of the day, if your full vindication and justification is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, then you will come to the place of verses 3 through 5 in your prayer life, in your walk with the Lord, that it doesn't matter what your enemies are doing. Your vindication is not in that. Your vindication is in Christ. And so you can be honest before the Lord and confess your sin. And ask God to change your heart to the very people who have harmed you. But it's our pride in our cherished sin that keeps us from doing that. Well, David not only prays, exonerate me and examine me. He prays, number three, encourage me. Look at verses six and seven. I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Do you know what David is doing in verses 6 and 7? He is continuing to plead with God to intervene in his life and in his situation. And notice how he prays through his pain. He is confident that God will pay attention to his people. And look at what he says in verses 6 and 7. He is confident that God will answer him. That God will incline his ear to him and that God will hear his words. One commentator said God's face is towards him. God's eyes are upon him. And now God's ears are open to him. And David has God's full attention. And then in verse 7, oh, verse 7 is a verse that is worth coming to church for today. No matter how much your struggle was to get here, verse 7 was worth it. And in this verse, David uses language similar to that of the exodus from Egypt. Notice the language that he uses in verse 7. The words wonder, steadfast love, and right hand echo the same words that Moses sang after Israel crossed the Red Sea. And in Exodus chapter 15, verses 11 to 13, this is what Moses said. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Hear the word? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And just as all Yahweh heard Israel's pleas for intervention and cries for help, and just as all Yahweh intervened on their behalf, so David asked the Lord to wondrously show his steadfast love to him. The phrase wondrously show, it literally means to make a distinction. And it's used three times in the plague narratives in the book of Exodus. It occurs in connection with the fourth plague of the flies, the fifth plague of the livestock, and the tenth plague of the firstborn. And in each of these plagues, Yahweh promises to make his special care, his covenantal love for Israel obvious by making a distinction between Israel and Pharaoh and his people. 
And in all of these situations, God wondrously shows, powerfully displays the distinction between his people and Pharaoh. And so David prays, God, make a distinction between me and those who are hurting me. And wondrously show, look at the phrase, steadfast love. It is God's covenantal love. A love that is irrevocable. A love that is full of mercy and faithfulness. A love that will ultimately fulfill every single promise that God makes to his people. Do you know what David is really praying here? He is really asking God to show himself to be the God of the Exodus again. But this time to show it in his life. And God, just as you parted the Red Sea and brought your people through in victory and safety, God, I'm now asking you to make a distinction in my life, to encourage me, to wonderfully show how much you love me to those who are surrounding me. You see, in these verses, David was confident that God would be the savior of those who seek refuge in him. And that God, by his mighty right hand and his powerful arm, would come through for David and work in his life. David knew what you and I need to remember, friends, that God is a God of covenant and he always keeps his covenants. And just as he kept his covenant to his people in the Exodus, so he would keep his covenant with his servant David and rescue him from this immediate danger. And just as he did that for David, he'll do it for you and me, friends, because as Paul reminds us, all of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. And if you ever wonder if God has stopped keeping his covenants, stopped keeping his promises to his people, all you have to do is look to the cross. The cross is evidence that God will always keep his word and God will always fulfill his promises. And friends... God wondrously shows his love to his people. Paul said it this way, that God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the ultimate display of God's love for you and me was the display that he played out on the cross through his son. And because he displayed his love in that way through his son, he displays his love through grace and mercy on a daily basis in our lives, even when you don't notice it. And so I'm just asking you this morning to pause for a minute in this verse. Pause for a minute and recognize the truth of what David is saying. Do you realize this morning how much you are loved by God. Oh, it's easy to talk about God's love. It's easy to sing it, and it's easy to talk about it and sing it and say it and have it disconnected from our hearts, have no emotion, no feeling towards it. David understood what a great concept this was, That the God of the universe who spoke everything into being set his love and affection on him. And there, in the midst of his hideout, surrounded by his enemies, crying out to God, God, show this love to me. Friends, do you believe that God loves you like that? 
Do you believe that you're cherished by the God of the universe? Like David, are you so convinced of God's love that you would appeal to him in your pain and actually cry out and ask him to show you once more how much he loves you? That's what David did. God, I'm in pain. I know you love me, but it would really be an encouragement to me today if you would show me one more time your love. That I'm not alone. Well, David not only prays, exonerate me, examine me, and encourage me. In verses 8 to 12, he prays, encompass me. Look at what he says. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence. My deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. In verse 8, David employs language from another song of Moses to describe God's protective care for his people when they're in danger. It's, it's a reference of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 9 to 11. Listen to the language. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him, listen, as the apple of his eye. And like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. David uses the phrase that Moses used, the apple of your eye. It's referring to the pupil, the central point through which light enters our eye, the part of the eye that needs to be protected. And David is saying, just as we protect our eye from injury, so God protects us. God, I'm the apple of your eye. Protect me. What boldness. Have you ever said to God that you're the apple of his eye? David did. Protect me in this way, God. And then notice what he says. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. This is a picture of protection from the blazing heat of the hot desert sun. And as a mother bird's wings encompasses her children and protects them with shade. So David prays that God would encompass him and shelter him under his mighty wings and protect him from what's happening in his life. Listen to how the psalmist describes this encompassing, protecting care of God. You're going to need these verses one day, friends. If you don't need them this morning, I promise you, one day you're going to need these verses that I'm about to give to you. They're real. They deal with real life. Psalm 57, 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. And in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Listen. Till the storms of destruction pass by. God, till the tornadoes of life pass by. You are my refuge. You are my strong tower. I'm running to you. Cover me. Encompass me in your wings. Protect me, God. Show your love to me. We need that kind of prayer. Psalm 63, 7. For you've been my help. 
In the, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Oh, don't miss it. Do you see what he's saying? He's under God's wings. He's in the shadow of his wings. God is encompassing him and protecting him. The picture is that of a storm that is raging. And what is the psalmist saying he is doing under the wings of his heavenly father? Singing for joy in the storm. Now you tell me you don't need to be reminded of that in your pain? You don't need to be reminded of that in your hardship? That God is such a wondrous, loving, kind, gracious God in the midst of your pain. That he would remind you of his love. Remind you that you are the apple of his eye. And encompass you with his wings. So that in those moments of pain and heartache and fear and worry and anxiety. You could sing with joy. Which one of us in this room doesn't need to pray a prayer like that? It's real friends. God wants us to live the Christian life in such a way that in these times of pain, they don't steal our song. Then in the pain, we sing our way to glory. And so David is asking God to keep him and to hide him from the wicked who have surrounded him and are ready to destroy them. And in verses 10 to 12, he describes his enemies he says they close their hearts to pity. It literally means they close their fat. In Scripture, this language of enclosing the fat is describing pride and selfishness and worldliness. They're so insensitive to David and what's going on with his life. They have no pity for him. They have no mercy for him. They have no compassion for him. Their hearts are hardened. He says in verse 10 that with their mouths they speak arrogantly. They're full of pride, speaking false words. In verse 11, he says they set their eyes to cast him to the ground. And then in verse 12, he says they're like lions hungry for prey, hunting their prey, eager to pounce upon David's life. But here's what I want you to notice. As David prays for God to encompass him and engage with his enemies. In verses 8 and 9, he doesn't pray for God to excuse him from the battle. He prays for God to help him in the battle. He prays for God to help him in the battle. It's the same thing that Jesus prayed for his people in John 17 in his high priestly prayer before he went to the cross. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Praying that God would encompass us in the battles of life. Well, David not only prays, exonerate me, examine me, encourage me, and encompass me. He also prays in verses 13 and 14, engage them. Look at his language. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. And in verses 13 and 14, David lifts his eyes above his enemies to the Lord. And the language that David uses in these verses is of a person who is in a battle. And he's appealing to God to be the divine warrior of his life and to intervene on his behalf and bring down his enemies. And notice how he prays in verse 13. He asks God to arise, to confront and subdue his enemies. He asks God to deliver his soul 
by yielding his sword against them. And then in verse 14, surrounded by his enemies, David pleads for the Lord to save him from these worldly men who seek to do him harm. And David is teaching us that these men opposed God and they opposed his servant and they lived for the pleasures of the world. Their vision of life was narrow. They were satisfied, David says, with their portion in this earthly life and they had no vision for the life to come. Here's the commentary of David's enemies. Listen to it carefully. They loved the gifts that came from God, but they did not love God. That's why they were worldly men. That's why they lived for what they could get in this life. Now, the end of verse 14 is very, very difficult to translate. And all different kinds of suggestions have been given. But keeping it in the context of the verses before it and what David is saying about his enemies, I believe the end of verse 14 provides a powerful description of what David asks God to do to his enemies. David is essentially praying this. Since these men are men of the world, and since they love the world and not you, God, give them their fill of the world. That's what he's praying one commentator said, they want this world, give it to them and let them perish in it. And furthermore, if their children refuse to depart from their ways, fill their children with it too. Curse their children with their blessings. Derek Kidner, who is a scholar in Psalms and Proverbs, says it means heaping on them the very things they love. They are men of the world. Give them their fill of it because to have everything in the world but God is the true form of judgment. Do you hear that, friends? It's a judgment. Now listen to your pastor. This is a sober warning in verse 14. It means that it is highly possible to live your life for the wrong world. That it is highly possible to love the gifts of God and not love God. That it is highly possible to be satisfied with what you can receive in this life and be sorrowful in the life to come. That it is highly possible, listen dads, on this Father Day, listen, it is highly possible to leave a great inheritance to your children and not give them the true riches of the Word of God and of the love for God and a love for the people of God. That it is highly possible to gain all kinds of accolades in this world, all kinds of positions of prominence, and come to the end of your race and come to the end of your life and have missed the whole point. It is highly possible to find yourself at the end of verse 14. Taking into eternity... Your fill of the world and missing God. And I wonder this morning, does this warning apply to any of us in this room? Well, David not only prays, exonerate me, examine me, encourage me, encompass me, and engage them. Finally, he prays, embrace me. Verse 15. And as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. 
when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Notice how David ends this psalm, this prayer. He ends it on a note of joy, hope, and satisfaction. And while David prays through his pain, he knows that God does not always bring immediate relief in this life, but he will always bring eternal relief in the life to come. And therefore, no matter what happens to him, David knows that one day he will awake, he will be fully righteous, and he will behold the face of his Lord forever. And he will be satisfied in God's presence. The word awake that he uses in verse 15 is a metaphor to describe resurrection. Isaiah used it in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19. He said, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. David is essentially saying that he knows, surrounded by his enemies, that if God doesn't deliver him in this situation and they take his life, God will ultimately deliver him from death and raise him to new life in Jesus Christ. Friends, what David ends this prayer with in Psalm 15 is the same way he ended Psalm 16. In verse 11, he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's what John described when he got a vision of what it would be like in resurrection life in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Resurrection. Forever satisfied in the presence of Jesus. One commentator said, nothing on earth can satisfy the heart of a man or woman who loves God. Nothing can compare to the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Do you think of that day, friends? Do you think of that day when what you've been living and seeing by faith would one day be sight? That day, when you look face to face with the one you've read about, the one you've prayed to, the one you've sung to with your windows down in your car and your hand raised in the air, when on that day, you will see him face to face and you will behold his glory because you won't be looking at him through eyes of sin. You will be looking at him through a glorified, resurrection, resurrected body just like his. And you'll see him on that day as he is. And can you imagine what that will be like on that day? When in your weariness and your tiredness, by his grace you persevere, persevered and you fall into his arms. And he embraces you face to face with your Lord forever, forever in his embrace. And that's how David ended his prayer in pain. On February 14, 1747, Jerusha 
Edwards, daughter of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, died after a week-long fever. She was 17. And it was no mere sentiment, but solid truth that testified to her evident faith in godly life. Among the many things that she did at a young age, she devoted herself to nursing David Brainerd, her father's friend, in his last days until he died four months before her. Her parents buried her next to Brainerd's grave, and her gravestone bears the text her parents chose. Do you know what was engraved on it? I shall be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. Is that what you would say? Is that what you would say, friend? If you died today, could those who know you best chisel on your tombstone? I'll be satisfied with his likeness. One day, you're going to wish you had lived for the right world. And it's going to be too late. Psalm 17 is not just a prayer for those who are falsely accused or under attack. It is a prayer for every believer. We all struggle. We all suffer. We all have spiritual battles. And David teaches us that our first response is prayer and that we pray with confidence because our vindication comes from Jesus Christ and we pray through our pain. Because one day, if we know Christ, we will be fully satisfied with his likeness. Let's pray.